I was uh, doing a little word game looking up how many times certain words were used in the Bible, and I, I rarely do that. It seems like a rather mundane chore that doesn't really say much, but I thought that for today's message, it does mean something. The word remember, or remembered, or remembrance is used over 215 times in the King James Version of the Bible. And the opposite of it, forget or forgot, is used 69 times. And, of course, variations of these words would add to those numbers. So you're looking at close to 300 times that these words, remember or forget, are used in the Scriptures. Now, there are other words that are used far more often, such as the word love, But nevertheless, I think there's a message in this that God wants us to remember. Don't forget. And with this coming Monday, the 26th, being the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the Global Church of God slash Living Church of God, we're here remembering. And when we say global slash living, there's a history for a change that took place, and it's good for us to to understand that. So today I want to remind everyone to remember and not forget the lessons of the past. If you're looking for a title, it's very simply, Remember, Don't Forget. Over in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, a very familiar passage for most of us, but it's good for us to remember it and never forget it. 1 Corinthians 10, and in verse 11, after talking about Israel, giving a little bit of history of Israel coming out of Egypt and how the rock that followed them was Christ, and he talks about some of the mistakes that Israel made, and then in verse 11 he says, Not all, Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They're written for you and to me to remember, to think about, to consider the mistakes that Israel made, lest we forget and do the same. And then he follows that up by saying, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because, you see, all those people came through the Red Sea. They saw the miracles that God performed, greater miracles for the most part than any of us have ever seen. I know there have been some outstanding miracles amongst God's people, healings that could not be explained away by any other cause than a miracle and other things that have happened. But when you see the Red Sea open up and you walk through on dry land, that's pretty spectacular. And that was after all the other miracles that took place that God used to bring Israel out of Egypt. And so he says to us, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. A simple history of the church tells us that that's something that we ought to remember. Because literally tens of thousands of individuals who sat in services as we are sitting here today have fallen away. And I wish they weren't true, but I have to believe that there are some who are sitting here right now who won't be here to the end, who will not remain faithful to the end. And that's simply because of numbers. I don't know who. In fact, oftentimes, 
It's the people we don't expect. And the people who stay are not the ones we necessarily expect. It's a, a battle. It's a war that's going on, and there's a real devil out here, and he's trying to destroy us. When we hear the word remember in the biblical context, what is the first thing that comes to our mind? To remember. Well, for many of us, it would be found in Exodus, the 20th chapter, and verse 8. And I'll just quote that here. I guess I don't need to necessarily turn over. I'm not going to quote the whole passage, but it does say, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember this day. This day that we are observing at this time. And note what it says. Remember the Sabbath day. We must not stop there because the next phrase says to keep it holy. To keep this day holy. So it's one thing to come to services on the Sabbath day. It's one thing to not work on the Sabbath day. But it's another thing to keep it holy, to see it as time set aside for a very special purpose. And I would just leave, leave this by saying that it's something that we ought to meditate on, to think about, each one of us, what does it mean to keep it holy? What is it that I'm doing that maybe I could do differently or should be doing differently? How do we keep this day holy? I'll leave that for another sermon at another time. But for each of us, we ought to remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Note also the other account, Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, where the Ten Commandments are restated. And there are a few minor changes, but significant changes in what is stated there. But here in verse 5, I'm sorry, not verse 5, verse 15, it says, And remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. This is under the seventh-day Sabbath command. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the eternal your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, therefore, the eternal your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So one of the lessons is that we are to remember that we were once slaves, or he said to Israel that they were once slaves. But there's a spiritual lesson in this for you and me, because we were all slaves at one time to the things of this world, to our passions, to our desires, to our emotions, to the things that we lusted after. Notice over in Romans, the sixth chapter, that it gives us some insight into slavery and freedom. Romans 6 begins with a passage that we read when someone wants to be baptized. We virtually always read at least the first seven verses of Romans 6 and sometimes more, because he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, that's rather interesting because many people thought when the worldwide church broke up that, well, we're just under grace and we don't have to keep the law anymore. And Paul recognized that people would misunderstand some of the things he said. 
And so he would ask these questions from time to time. And he said, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue breaking the law of God? Because sin is the transgression of the law. So that grace would abound. He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then he mentions about baptism and how we are baptized into Jesus Christ. Baptized into his death. That the baptism ceremony is like a burial, a death, a burial. And it coming up to a new way of life. And it says, verse 7, For he who died has been freed from sin, not freed to sin, but freed from sin. Verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. So there is obedience in this case to sin. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And that's a verse that is oftentimes quoted by those who are antinomians against law. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. But they fail to read the next verse, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? Shall we continue breaking God's law? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not, he says. God forbid. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are one that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience, obedience what? Obedience to God, obedience to His law, which leads to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were once, you were slaves of sin, we once were, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. It's interesting. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. I think something that really struck home to me was when I was living in Canada, there was a fellow by the name of Sven Robinson. He was a parliamentarian, an open... Uh, openly homosexual, and he was caught on camera stealing about a $5,000 ring for his husband, wife, whichever it was. I don't know which whatever it was. And that was pretty much the end of his political career, although the, uh, the RCMP let him off, gave him a chance to return it in certain ways, but it became public. And it's interesting because lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. And we have a more modern example, this uh, individual that was placed over the uh, disposal of nuclear waste for this administration. And if you've seen any of the pictures of him, it's pretty shocking. He's uh, I, I, trans something, I'm not sure exactly whether he's just a transvestite or a trans individual. But anyway, 
he's all decked out in his garb and one thing or another, and he was caught stealing luggage at the airport, all caught on camera. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. And when someone does not respect the law of God, then why would they respect the laws of man? Those are just outlandish examples that we see, but it is true that even in small ways, when we give in to one form of lawlessness, it makes it easier to go in for another form of lawlessness. It says, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of, of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. And then verse 23, which is kind of a memorization scripture for us. For the wages of sin, that's what we earn by sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have here the case where God tells us to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. In the context of the Sabbath command, to remember that we once were a slave in the land of Egypt. But God, through incredible miracles, brought us out of Egypt. And for all of us, to one degree or other, it was a miracle that God changed our mind to realize the nature that we have, that we are sinners, and that our, our nature is that of sin, and that we must change, we must repent of it, and through Jesus Christ can be forgiven. And that is a miracle and it's interesting to watch people sometimes who are very hostile to God in one way or another and come around to not being hostile anymore, but being fully on board for obedience to God. I remember a, a fellow many years ago, I was down in Louisiana working, and he, he, he mentioned that he picked up one of the booklets I think it was American Britain and Prophecy, uh, this Worldwide Days, whatever the name was at the time. It was that booklet or another one. He picked it up, and he said it just seemed like a comic book. It didn't seem like it made any sense at all, and he just set it aside. Six months later, he picked it up, and it made sense because God turned the screw up here. He did something up here. Actually, he took his Holy Spirit and opened the mind of the individual. And there are so many stories like that. And I'm sure that if we were to ask all of you out here, you would have your own story to tell of how you had your mind opened up. And it's a little different when you grow up in the church. But I remember a young man talking about how he grew up in the church and he had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. He always wanted to keep that one one foot in the world a little bit, and he finally had this awakening that he really had his main foot in the world, and he just had his other foot in the church just in case. And it was a revelation to him. He had to awaken to that. And so it is a miracle for God to open our minds to see that we once were 
in the world. We were slaves of sin, and we must come out and come out of Egypt, spiritual bondage, come out of slavery, because the days of unleavened bread teach us that sin is bondage, and it's not easy to come out of it, and it's everywhere around us. There's so many lessons that we'll go through as we go through that during the days of unleavened bread. Part of the problem that we have is we don't always know the past. Uh, and it, it's important for us to know why we are here and where we're headed. Why the global church of God? On screen, we just saw a little bit of the history of the church, but it was very quick. It was very uh, minimal, uh, just a, a short survey of things. And I'd like to go into it a little bit deeper here. But why the global church of God? Why the living church of God? Because many of you were not around when these things happened. Let me ask how many of you were too young to really understand why Dr. Maris started the global church of God. Now, that was 30 years ago. So unless you're... 45, let's say, 15 years of age at the time, and probably most teenagers are not that into all the doctrines and all the ins and outs of things. But if you were not baptized at that time, you probably, you may have been upset when your parents were leaving your friends in worldwide and different things. You probably knew something was going on, but how much did you really understand? So let's just say, 45 years of age. How many of you are 45 years of age or under? Raise your hands and hold them up high. Okay. All right. That's a pretty good number. Uh, let's go back a little bit further because the reason for the global church of God goes back to the time of Mr. Herbert Armstrong's death in 1986. So, It'll be 38 years in a few weeks, January the 16th, 1986. And so that would take us up to the, you know, 50, 55. Let's say 55 years of age. How many of you are 55 or younger? Now, some of you ladies need to put your hands down, but no. no go ahead, keep your hands up. 55 or, okay. So I can't see all of you, but that's a good share of you. And it's important that you understand how we got here. Uh, it, it's easy to say, well, I know there was some sort of a, a disruption in the church, or they did this or did that. They, they got away from the, the teachings of the church. But it's important that we understand really what did happen. Mr. Jonathan McNair and I were talking, and he was pointing out that, you know, we ought to really produce some sort of a, a, a program, put it on video, probably put it in writing as well, to go back and show some of the history how the transition came after Mr. Herman Armstrong's death, of how it was written. It was in writing. It was black and white, so to speak, uh, in print. How, no, we're not changing anything. And two years later, yes, they were changing everything. The hint was there before, but they denied it. Cognitive dissonance, sometimes they call it. They, they use that term a lot. But they were telling us one thing when they were doing something entirely different. And I remember a, a man one time talking about unions, and I'm not going to get into that argument, uh, but uh, he was talking about it because Michigan was very, uh, you know, pro-union, against unions, and he said, 
if it's so good, why did they have to sell it with a club? And I would say in this particular case, uh, if it is so right, why did they have to sell it with lies? Because it was one lie after another after another. God has shown us that it's good to review our history. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106 are, are long chronicles of Israel's history and showing what has happened in the past, not just Israel, but even before Israel, the flood, going back in time, reminding us of what has happened. When you think about it, the entirety of the Bible is a history book. Now, some of it is history in advance, prophecy, but it's a history book because God wants us to know what's happened before and what's going to happen in the future. Acts, the seventh chapter, when Stephen was being uh, put on trial, you might say. I don't know if it was a formal trial, but he was there before uh, certain individuals. And he went back into the history and showed how Israel had murdered the prophets and done all kinds of things and how they rejected God's truth down through time. And then he focused in on them and they stoned him. Mr. Herbert Armstrong went back again and again to the very beginning, beginning chapters of the Bible to the two trees. And I remember some years ago, and we probably need to have a sermon on it again because people say, well, I hear about these two trees. What are the two trees? What's the big deal about it? Well, Mr. Armstrong talked about the two trees so much that after he was gone, nobody wanted to talk about it because everybody was sick of hearing about the two trees. But you know what? He was dead on. He was absolutely right. And when he said, only half of you get it, or in one occasion at least, he said, I think only 10% of you get it, how right he was. We didn't get the difference between the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of death and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And people have been imbibing of it ever since as well. He also reminded us of how God called him and what the conditions were of a dying era of a church. So to understand, to really understand where we are in this modern world, I guess we really need to go all the way back to the beginning of time, but let's go back to the early 1900s, to 1926 and 1927. I want to read here from Mr. Herbert Armstrong. It's, it's hard to stop reading because he was such a, a, an interesting writer. And if you see his autobiography, it's, uh, this is volume one. And we have it in the library if somebody would like a copy. I'm sure somebody would loan you a copy. But if you want to go on eBay or someplace, don't pay the $224 that somebody's trying to make off of it. Uh, there are a lot of them, a lot less than that if you if you don't have one of these autobiographies and would like it. But on page 288, uh, he, he was giving us such wonderful information about uh, his early conversion. And he mentions here that his wife was always interested in the Bible to some degree, and 
Breaking into it here, he says, but all Mrs. Armstrong's active interest in things biblical was reawakened when she became acquainted with Mrs. Runcorn. This is up in Oregon. It says, one day Mrs. Runcorn gave her a Bible study. She asked my wife to turn to a certain passage and read it, then a second, then a third, and so on for about an hour. Mrs. Runcorn made no comment, gave no explanation or argument, just asked my wife to read aloud a series of biblical passages. Why, explained Mrs. Armstrong in amazement, do all these scriptures say that I've been keeping the wrong day as a Sabbath all my life? Well, do they, asked Mrs. Runcorn. Don't ask me whether you have been wrong. You shouldn't believe what any person tells you, but only what God tells you through the Bible. What does he tell you there? Uh, what do you see there with your own eyes? Why, it's as plain as anything could be, explained Mrs. Armstrong. Why, this is a wonderful discovery. I must rush back to tell my husband the good news. I know he'll be overjoyed. A minute or so later, Mrs. Armstrong came running into my parents' home uh, with the good news. My jaw dropped. That was the worst news I had ever heard. My wife gone into religious fanaticism. Have you gone crazy? I asked incredulously. Well, I won't take more time with that, but uh, that's, that's the beginning of what Mr. Armstrong uh, Mr. Armstrong's conversion, I, I say his conversion, the whole process of it. What Mrs. Armstrong had come in contact with was the Church of God, Seventh Day. And if you turn over to Revelation, this is something that was not understood by Mr. Armstrong at the time. Really something that we understood in retrospect. But what he came in contact with was a church that was in the process of imploding. Because of democratic form of government where the members were appointing their leaders and hiring them and this type of thing, and because of other things, the church was beginning to splinter. There was a Salem, West Virginia uh, conference, I guess I would call it, uh, Stanbury, Missouri was the headquarters at, at one time. I've been there to Stanbury, seen their uh, old office or church building there on a corner. It's not, not very impressive at all. Met the minister who was there when I was in Kansas City. You, you read about these things, and someday you, you happen to be driving through and say, oh, I, I remember this from uh, what Mr. Armstrong used to talk about. But what he was saying was a church that was not very dynamic by any means. Mr. Lambert Greer uh, grew up in that area, knew some of those people up in that area, and has probably a lot that he could fill in about uh, Mr. Armstrong's time in Oregon. But here in Revelation, the third chapter, it says, And to the angel of the church, or the messenger of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Do you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead? You're dead as a church. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. So there are things that remained of, of doctrinal truths and so forth that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard 
Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you do not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Notice verse 3 began with remember. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, and hold fast and repent. God wants us to remember what it was like when we first came out of this world and came into the truth. What was the awakening moment for you? And what did you learn at that time? You know, the the history of the church of God has been a turbulent one. And there have been so many times when on my knees in prayer I've had to go back and say, God, how can it be when we are so imperfect? In so many words. And I always go back to the pillars, the three pillars I look at. Does God exist? And I, I know that God exists. I've proved it to myself a thousand different ways. I know God exists. I've proved it to myself. I have no question. I, I don't believe in evolution, that you know, macroevolution. I don't believe that life came from that which is non-living. I don't believe that this universe is here by chance. It had a beginning. Scientists know that. And they can go back so far and they talk about the first instant of the explosion, as they call it, the cosmic expansion, commonly called Big Bang. They can go back and they can look at it, but they can only go so far because what was before? What brought that about? What was it? Was it nothing? Was it something? Whatever it was, how did it get there? How did it begin? And then is the Bible the Word of God? And you can see the prophecies that have been fulfilled, prophecies that are being fulfilled before our very eyes today. Not difficult prophecies, but sometimes the most obvious ones. The man would come to the place where he could destroy all life on this planet. And that couldn't have been prior to the last century. All of man's history, going down through history and, and for uh, the time that was that was given, better part of 1,900 years, more than 1,900 years from the time that that prophecy was made. It was not possible for man to destroy all life off this planet. But Christ said that we would come to that place. And we're not quite there yet, but we certainly have the means by which we can do it through nuclear, chemical, biological methods. We can destroy all life from this planet. There are many other proofs that we have. Armies surrounding Jerusalem. You can read Zechariah, the 14th chapter, how he's going to bring all nations against the Jews and Jerusalem. But the Jews haven't always been in charge of Jerusalem. It was only after 1948 and only after 1967 that they took all of Jerusalem. These are things that, you know, could, could not be easily explained away. So the Sardis era, what we call the Sardis era, was coming to a close, although it's still around and probably will be around until Christ returns. Because he says, verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I remember talking with the minister there in Stanbury. He has since died, although he was... 
our age or younger, died fairly young, but nevertheless, he was talking about the fact that, uh, you know, they, they use grape juice instead of wine for the Passover. And he says it's just the fruit of the vine. He said it could be watermelon, or for that matter, it could be coffee, because the beans come off of a, actually more of a bush than a vine, I think. But that was his understanding of that. And we asked him, what about those people who have never heard the name of Christ? What's going to happen to them? And he looked at us with a big smile on his face. Well, I don't know the answer to that. That's for God to decide. And I think that might not have been too polite. Say, well, that's cute, but there's an answer in the Scriptures. Because, you see, they don't keep the holy days, although some apparently do. But many of them do not keep the holy days. They're not emphasized in the way that they should be. And so they don't understand those things. Now, Mr. Armstrong was coming on when this was happening. And yet, at that time, there were still many people very sincere, not very excited about things, not excited about taking the gospel to the world, but they were nice people. And there were people that obeyed God as much as they understood at that time. And they kept the Sabbath. And some of them kept the holy days. And they understood the laws of clean and unclean meats. They understood tithing and a number of other issues that, or doctrines that they did understand. On page 303, Mr. Armstrong talks about the struggle that he had with the Sabbath day. beginning on page 303 and then going on the next page, just starting here. Under a heading, Law and Grace, he says, I studied carefully everything I could obtain which attempted to refute the Sabbath. I wanted more than anything on earth to refute it, to prove that Sunday was the true uh, Christian Sabbath or Lord's Day. I read the arguments about law or grace. I was pointed to and read Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But I looked into the Bible and found the pamphlet had left out the rest of the verse, which says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That is true because I read in 1 John 3, 4 that the Bible definition of sin is not man's conscience or his church don'ts, but sin is the transgression of the law. Naturally, then, the knowledge of sin comes by the law. And I discovered the pamphlet forgot to quote the 31st verse. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. You you cannot have grace, as I've brought out in past sermons. You cannot have grace if there is no law, because if there is no law, there is no sin. If there is no sin, what do we repent of? No, we establish the law. I read in the pamphlet, the law works wrath. Romans 4.15, I turned to my Bible and read the rest of the same verse. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Of course, because the law defines sin. Sin is disobedience of the law. I read in one of the pamphlets that the law was an evil thing, contrary to our best interests. But then I read in Romans 7, is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, You shall not covet. 
And wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. And again, for we know that the law is spiritual. And he mentions the verses there in Romans, uh, the seventh chapter. So that I learned that grace is pardon through the blood of Christ for having transgressed the law. But if a human judge pardons a man for breaking a civil criminal code, that pardon does not repeal the law. The man is pardoned so that he may now obey the law, and God pardons only after we repent of sin. But do not suppose I quickly or easily came to admit my wife had been right or to accept the Seventh-day Sabbath as the truth of the Bible. I remember Mr. Armstrong up in Orr, Minnesota, 1983. We were sitting there, several of us, uh, in, a, in a little cabin there, and he was talking about three hours, throwing a few questions at him, but mostly he was just talking about things. And he says, it's very difficult to admit that your wife is right, especially about the most important argument you've ever had. And he didn't want to give in to her in that. He said, I spent a solid six months of virtual night and day, seven-day-a-week study and research, and a determined effort to find just the opposite. I searched in vain for any authority in the Bible to establish Sunday as the day for Christian worship. I even studied Greek sufficiently to run down every possible questionable text in the original Greek. I studied the commentaries. I studied the lexicons and Robertson's grammar of the Greek New Testament. Then I studied history. I delved into encyclopedias of Britannica, the Americana, and several religious encyclopedias. I searched the Jewish encyclopedia and the Catholic encyclopedia. I read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, especially his chapter 15, dealing with the religious history of the first 400 years after Christ. And one of the most convincing evidences against Sunday was in the history of how and when it began. I left no stone unturned. I found clever arguments. I will confess that so eager was I to overthrow this Sabbath belief of my wife, at one point in this intensive study, I believed I might possibly have been able to use arguments to confuse and upset my wife on the Sabbath question. But there was no temptation to try to do it. I knew these arguments were not honest. I could not deliberately try to deceive my wife with dishonest arguments. The thought was immediately pushed aside. I know now she could not have been deceived. Finally, after six months, the truth had become crystal clear. At last I knew what was the truth. Once again, God had taken me to a licking. Very, very interesting beginning. And we need to understand that God was transitioning from the Sardis era to a brand new era. When we read in Revelation, the third chapter, the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. The key of David really had to do with government. Not about the identity of who Israel is, but it has to do with government. Because if you go back to the, uh, the, the account of this in Isaiah 22, I believe it is, uh, you, you see that it has to do with government, authority. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, 
Notice a little strength. Have kept my word and have not denied my name. You know, it's interesting that uh, William Ramsey, in his book, Letters to the Seven Churches, the Seven Churches of Revelation, these letters here that we're reading from, he calls the Philadelphia church the missionary city or the missionary church and points out that while all of those churches had opportunities to spread the gospel, it's the Philadelphia church that had the enthusiasm and really put their heart into doing it. And when you look at the open doors that God has given to us, he says he opens the doors and we have radio, we have television, we have the printing press, we have the Internet. We have tools that no other church had the opportunity to use. But, of course, there is the Laodicean church, which were really, no doubt, in that era. God willing, that's not you and that's not me. But we have a lot of confusion out here about the church, and we have a lot of people who keep the Sabbath and holy days, but they don't have the fire in their belly, as Dr. Meredith did and as Mr. Armstrong before him, to do the work of God. This is really what we're seeing here. In 1931, Mr. Armstrong was ordained by the Church of God Seventh Day. That was the, the term, and, and Church of God Seventh Day is still around in various forms. But they had formed the Oregon Conference, mostly as a result of had to do with money and who's in charge and this sort of thing, as so often is the case. They broke off from Stanbury, Missouri. But he was ordained by that organization. He never felt like he was really a part of it, but he, he was in a way. He, uh, he was ordained by them. That was 1931. And then on October the 9th, 1933, he went on a 100-watt radio station. They were offering free time for anyone who would get up on Sunday morning and give a 15-minute program uh, from 7.45 to 8 o'clock in the morning. But it wasn't until the next year, the first Sunday in 1934, that he went on the air for a half hour and began what was called the, church, uh, the uh, Radio Church of God. That's when it really began, the first week in January of 1934. The Plain Truth magazine came out the next month, and as he described it, it was hardly a magazine. It was a mimeographed paper that was sent out, very crude at the time. And you can still see uh, copies of this from time to time on the Internet and elsewhere. February 1934, the lead article, is a world dictator about to appear. Rather interesting he didn't understand that there would be another restoration of the Roman Empire, but this was just a few years before Adolf Hitler and Mussolini rose up with one of the uh, revivals of the Roman Empire. He began to keep the holy days. Dr. I mean, uh, Mr. Meredith, I'm sorry, Mr. Herbert Armstrong and Loam Armstrong. They kept them by themselves. And as I understand, it was about seven years that they kept them by themselves because nobody else was keeping them. But they didn't understand at the beginning what they meant. 
we take for granted the meaning of these days. We can turn to scriptures in the Bible which show that leavening is a type of sin. We can see the trumpets and the trumpet plagues in the New Testament for the Feast of Trumpets. We can see the Day of Atonement, how it fits in in Revelation 19 and 20. We can understand these things ourselves today because they were given to us by God through Mr. Herbert Armstrong. These were not things that were understood by the Sardis era. These were things that he had to learn. And he had to learn, in many cases, one doctrine at a time. Now, many of the doctrines that we hold were understood by the Church of God's Seventh Day, but many were not. And we take many things for granted today. Ambassador College began in 1947. And it was really to provide laborers for the harvest because by that time, Mr. Armstrong was on a number of radio stations and he was preaching every day of the week, uh, seven days a week. It was interesting, after 1947, when I came along in the early 60s, you could drive across this country or across Canada and at nighttime with your radio, if you were in a car or a truck, and many truckers uh, followed the, the, uh, the truth, uh, you, you couldn't miss those voices, Mr. Herbert Armstrong and his son, Garner Ted. And they just pierced right through there. And you could just dial across, boom, there it was. It was so easy to, to spot. And you, would, you could drive hundreds of miles and hear the radio program several times uh, every night. It was really a remarkable thing. But they kept the holy days by themselves, and by 1947 they began, Mr. Armstrong began Ambassador College, and it was a very trying time in starting it. By the time I entered Ambassador College in 1965, the circulation of the magazine had grown to 635,000 subscribers. That's not much different from where we are today. That was 1965 when I entered Ambassador College. And we're right around 600,000, plus or minus a few thousand because of renewals and because of new people subscribing. But we're just about where they were then. However, we do not have the coverage on radio that Mr. Armstrong had. And we've, we know that radio is really only, only works if you can have it uh, at least five, if not seven times a, day, you know, a week. It doesn't work once a week, not very well. Uh, television is far more impactful when it comes to once a week. But radio is something that still is impactful, I'm sure, but you have to have someone who can handle that type of workload, and we don't really have anyone at this time. But we are on television today, and even Mr. Armstrong went on television while I was an ambassador to college. He had tried it back in the 50s, and was never comfortable. He had, they had to go down to Hollywood to record, and it just wasn't a comfortable situation. But later on, we went on television. In 1968, the name changed to Worldwide Church of God because it had begun with Mr. Armstrong, the Radio Church of God, because that's where he was, was uh, uh, preaching. And we knew that the, the name of the church is Church of God. But to distinguish ourselves from the others, legally and otherwise, 
It was called the Radio Church of God, but by 1968, I say we, I had nothing to do with it, uh, the leaders of the church uh, determined that really it was a worldwide church, not just something that was going off on radio, and especially as we were going on television and, and many other means. I know that many of you are aware of it, but I'm sure that many are not, and maybe we could show one of those videos sometime. But Mr. Herbert Armstrong uh, was invited to see King Leopold of Belgium, one of our members in Germany who was a photographer and had some sort of dealings with him, showed him one of the envoys, one of the yearbooks. And many of you probably have not seen uh, the yearbook, some of you who are younger. And they were very professionally done, beautifully done. And when King, King Leopold saw that, he said, I want to meet the man who has built, you know, these uh, three uh, colleges, one in Texas, one in England, one in Pasadena. Absolutely beautiful campuses. Of course, Mr. Armstrong would be the first to tell you that he built nothing. He realized that it was God doing it through him. And as he got older and got very bold, he would let you know if you said something that was not quite right on that. He did not want to take credit for it. And I just read something there. It was quite interesting as I was reading a little bit of it this morning. And, and as he pointed out, he didn't plan a lot of these things. It wasn't through some great planning, although he always had done that in business, but it was God doing it through him. But he visited kings, emperors, Emperor Hirohito and Haile Selassie, the only two emperors alive at the time. Not only King Leopold of Belgium, but King Hussein. Uh, It's just remarkable the number of people, uh, King Bhumipal of Thailand, who had a very close relationship and Queen Sirikat with Mr. Armstrong. But as time went by, especially as he was out of the country visiting uh, people, telling them about the two trees, or as he presented it, there are two ways of life, give and get. He didn't take it in biblical terms, but he took it in terms that they could understand. And he was very respectful of these leaders, but they listened to him as he gave them these, um, these messages. And while he was gone, there were problems back home. And this is where Dr. Meredith kind of got to the place in his autobiography, or at least he was going to come up to it, where he didn't know exactly how to describe some of these things. But the fact of the matter is that his son did not have the same character that Mr. Armstrong did, Mr. Herbert Armstrong did. And as a result, uh, there were... People who became disillusioned, people became angry, and there was a rebellion that took place in 1974. The 70s were a turbulent time in the church. Mr. Armstrong realized that he'd been wrong about a couple doctrines. One was the day of Pentecost. Uh, The other had to do with divorce and remarriage. And he didn't wait around. He didn't take a, 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 a vote on it. He changed those doctrines. But there were other situations there, and during the 70s, we had 
a rebellion that took place on the East Coast, for the most part, among the ministry. And out of that, we lost about 3,000 members, about 30 ministers. The church at that time was about 155,000 that were attending the Feast of Tabernacles. Plain Truth Magazine was going out to, not at that point, but a little bit later, to 8 million people, although some of it was newsstands and uh, was not exactly subscribers, but there were 8 million magazines, 8.4 million that were printed at one time uh, per month. Following Mr. Herbert Armstrong's death in 1986, changes began to be made. Those changes really began around 74 and they continued through the 70s where things were getting watered down. And in 1978, I believe it was, Mr. Armstrong had a heart attack. And he cried out to God to revive him, to give him the, the strength to be able to come back and straighten out what was happening in the church because the church was getting off track. And so from 1979 to 1986, eight years, God gave him the ability to set the church back on track because it had really drifted away from the truth in a number of areas. After his death, however, those individuals came back and began to take charge of the church. And they started changing the doctrines very quickly. One of the first ones was the doctrine on healing and really doing away with it in many respects altogether. Born Again was another change that took place. In 1993, a booklet came out called, Is God a Trinity? Or God, I'm sorry, God is, dot, dot, dot. The Is God a Trinity was the right booklet, but God is, dot, dot, dot. But it was talking about the Trinity. And so... It was interesting because they were saying they weren't teaching the Trinity when in reality that's exactly what they were doing. But they were saying, we're just trying to explain a little different to some of the more sophisticated out there, the theologians out there. It was very deceptive what was being done. So at the end of 1992, beginning of 1993, Dr. and Mrs. Meredith Mr. and Mrs. Carl McNair, Mr. and Mrs. Don Davis, Davy Crockett and his wife, Dr. and Mrs. Jeffrey Fall. Not too long after that, Mr. John O'Gwen and his wife, the Fannins, Jim and Sue Meredith, Rod and Jonathan McNair and their wives, other ministers and faithful members left worldwide to join with Dr. Meredith to revive the work. They saw it, different ones of us saw it at different times. Some had more inside information than others, but nevertheless, it was obvious that things were changing. And so these faithful men and their wives and many other ministers and faithful wives recognized that the church had gone totally off track. On December the 17th, 1994, the pastor general at that time, Mr. Joseph Dukach, went out to Atlanta to try to calm things down because the minister there had gotten ahead of where they were going. 
They wanted to change the church, transform the church back into Protestantism, but they wanted to do it in such a subtle way that they wouldn't lose everybody. But the minister in Atlanta got ahead of the game and really let the cat out of the bag too soon. And so on the 17th of December, 1994, Mr. Dukach went out there and gave a sermon on the New Covenant and how we are New Covenant, which we are, by the way, but that was, that was a mis, it was, it was a, uh, a deception the way it was presented. And that was, in a way, the shot heard around the world, which, by the way, he died 40 weeks later to the day. But nevertheless, that was then printed up in the Pastor General's report, and so I happened to be in Big Sandy, as many people were that weekend. And we got the Pastor General's report with the transcript or a summary of it uh, even the day before. And so we were certainly anticipating something interesting. Uh, I believe Dr. Winneo was there at the time as well, and maybe some of you were as well. But on December the 24th, 1994, what is that, 28 years ago, to the day. He gave this three-hour sermon where he essentially said you could play golf on the Sabbath. You could work on the Sabbath if necessary to feed your family. We were under the New Covenant and a lot of other things that he talked about. I remember after the sermon that evening, there were several of us standing around. Dr. Hay was there. I remember the point that he made. He said, you cannot make an exception if you don't have a rule. In other words, you cannot have an ox in the ditch unless you have a rule against taking, against work on that day. It's just an interesting comment. I remember standing there, and there was a fellow that I lived with at Ambassador College that was standing there. I hadn't seen him for decades, and suddenly he, was, he just happened to be there, and we looked up, and wow. And he's with us to this day, as far as I know. The changes that were taking place were not minor. And I I, I mention this for a very important reason, because a few years ago, three years ago or or thereabouts, you had people running around saying that Weston's going to take the church the way of worldwide, uh, or the church is going the way of worldwide. A lot of it had to do with whether we wear masks or not, and people thought, oh, this is a, an apostasy from the truth. You know, that was so ridiculous. But in some cases, it was young people who had no idea what happened with Worldwide. They were saying, this is happening with us, and they had no idea what happened with Worldwide. You see, with Worldwide, there was not a, a reaction to a situation in the world that we'd never faced before and try to sort out how we deal with things. With Worldwide, it was a concerted, deliberate effort to take us away from the Sabbath, the holy days, the nature of God, and teach a trinity in in replace of that, the identity of Israel, specifically the ten tribes of uh, Ephraim and of, of uh, the, the lost ten tribes, but Ephraim, Manasseh, our identity, as well as the identity of Syria, Assyria. The definition of sin was being overthrown. 
and, of course, the true gospel was being overthrown. Essentially, everything that we believe in, that we sit here and believe in today, was under attack. We have our statement of fundamental beliefs, and they reflect, really, the teachings of the Worldwide Church of God when Mr. Armstrong was alive. And when it comes to changes, there have been very, very minor adjustments here and there. Uh, we, we certainly understand prophecy a little bit better in some ways. In some ways, maybe we don't because it gets confusing as to what's going to happen. But we, we're beginning to see things more clearly as we get closer to the end. But our statement of fundamental beliefs was, was new because the church had never just spelled it out that way. But we had so much literature on the subject, there was no doubt what the church taught, the Worldwide Church of God taught, and it was all being dismantled. In early 1995, other ministers joined to revive the work, Dr. Winnale, Mr. and Mrs. Lambert Greer, Mr. and Mrs. Rand Millich. In Kansas City, where I was, I gave my final sermon on March the 11th, 1995, we knew that we couldn't stay there because we didn't believe what they were teaching. We didn't know what to do. And when I gave that sermon, I still didn't know exactly what we were going to do other than the fact that I wasn't going to start my own church. But we had Mr. James Wells there. We had Mr. David Burson and their wives. We had another elder and his wife. And we all recognized that the church was off track and we couldn't go that way. And so I finally realized that getting fired is probably one of the easiest things in the world to do. And so I gave a sermon, and I said, here are all these changes. And we're not talking about minor changes. We're talking about the Sabbath, the holy days. As I pointed out, what Mr. Dukach was saying, you could eat a ham sandwich on the Day of Atonement. Because really, that they, I'm sure that they're doing that bottom line on what was being taught, the overthrow of clean and unclean meats. These were not little things. It was the heart and the core of what we taught, Sabbath, holy days, and law, and, and so forth, the nature of God. So I gave the sermon. I had three points. Here are all these changes, three questions. Why such massive changes? Where is it headed, and what should we do? The why was there was a hostility toward Mr. Herbert Armstrong and everything he taught, where is it headed? Right back into Protestantism. And what should we do? We should never leave the truth. I felt like I set off a bomb when I was through. It was, uh, it was a shocking thing when I sat down. But other ministers did similar things. Dr. Winnell stood up in Big Sandy. He would not give in to the heirs. Mr. Millich, Mr. Greer, others. And I'm leaving people out, I'm sure. The streams came along a short time later, but the church began to grow. Yet the majority of the individuals who are worldwide forgot from whence they had come. And they're described in Second Peter 2. Now, let me say that some have repented. Some have come back. It was a very confusing time. Some of some of them are you, some of you were confused and maybe went astray for a while. 
but God's Spirit in you did not die. There was something there that was still alive, the God's Spirit in you. And so, as it says here, Let me start in verse 19. It says, Well, they promised them liberty. They themselves are slaves of corruption. And that's exactly what was happening in the worldwide church. They promised them liberty. We're at liberty now. We don't have to do all those things. You don't have to pray every day. You don't have to study every day. Maybe that wasn't stated, but that was certainly the message that got through to people. And it's interesting in reading an article just this, uh, this last week how something like one-third of the ministry, actually a little bit more than a third of the ministry, of ministers of this world, do not have prayer study routines in their life. And if ministers don't, then what about their members? For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, verse 18, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse than for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Yes, sadly, tens of thousands of people went back in that direction. The church, living the global church of God, grew a bit. But it was shocking how quickly individuals forgot what they came out of, the heresies worldwide, and decided they needed to be in charge. And as was mentioned in the video, they decided to take over the church. And so Dr. Meredith and 80% of the ministry and 80% of the members began the Living Church of God. Started all over again. And the other group is just really diminished into next to nothing. And they've scattered in many different directions. You know, we have many, many warnings in the Bible. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, His statutes. Verse 14, Deuteronomy 8, 14. When your heart is lifted up, you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. He's saying, don't forget. Verse 19. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the eternal your God and follow other gods that serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. And back in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, when you have eaten and are full, when God has blessed us in so many ways, then beware lest you forget 
the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. The history of the church of God has been a turbulent one. It isn't just recently, last century, last hundred years. It's been a turbulent one down through history. That's why Jesus said that the gates of the grave would not prevail against it. That was a hint for us to recognize that it would be a turbulent history. And when you read the history of the church, you see that's the case. A time when the church went into total apostasy and the name of Christ was taken over by apostates. And the true church of God was looked upon as heretics. And that's because there's a very real devil out there trying to destroy it. But thankfully, God has promised that the truth will continue. There will always be a group of people who believe the truth. It's not dependent on Mr. Herbert Armstrong, Mr. Meredith, or me. Although God clearly used Mr. Herbert Armstrong in a way that's so remarkable and so above and beyond anything that, that even Dr. Meredith or, or I could do. And Dr. Meredith did what really only he could do, which was to revive the work. So let's be thankful for that. Let's not forget it. Knowing where we have been and remembering why we are here is essential to our stability. So I'll close with three words. Remember, don't forget.